This is the most important thing we'll do. Now those among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has, not come for your, has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light. You may become sons of light thankful this morning for the Lord's word. Well, your sermon outline should have the title on it. This, again, is the second part in our series of true triumph, moving from Jesus' attitude of humility as he entered into Jerusalem riding on a donkey to now his acceptance of a very key aspect of his triumph over sin, over the devil, over the world, not being sacrifice and suffering. So the call this morning is to share in the triumph of Christ, is to share in the suffering and sacrifice of Christ. That's a big thing that the Lord wants us to see in his word this morning. Sharing in the triumph of Christ is to share in the suffering and sacrifice of Christ. There's no way around that. There's no guaranteed path that that works you around the matter of suffering and sacrifice that gets you to the same end that Jesus arrived at that he had to go through suffering and sacrifice again this is a a kind of an advancement of this paradox remember jesus comes in and that triumphant entry on a donkey not on a war horse he comes in proclaiming peace not with a sword drawn ready to take back what is his he comes already with this sense of victory has been accomplished it hasn't yet because he hasn't gone to the cross but from the divine perspective It's as good as done. And that advances in this passage as well when Jesus has this moment of realization that the hour has come. That this is now the path of no return. There is no turning back. What has been set in motion cannot be stopped. 
And yet he expresses to his disciples and to those that are listening around him that suffering and sacrifice are going to be necessary. That he will have to endure a suffering that none of his people will ever have to endure, specifically that of the judgment of God against all sin. But what he says of himself, he lays on his followers as well. When he says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, my servant will be there also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. That path to honor, that path to true triumph is one that we must follow Jesus in. There's never a point where Jesus is walking down this path that he says, okay, disciples, you can't follow in this part. Again, our suffering looks different. He comes with a mission to earth to do something that he alone can do. None of us can go to a cross and pay even for our own sins in a temporal sense, but Jesus was the unique one who could do such a thing. He comes with an attitude of humility and now an acceptance of his suffering. And we have to ask ourselves how we respond to suffering, what we do with these kinds of things. Now this passage is technically, and you can probably see it in your Bibles if you have the headings, if you're looking at the ESV, there's certainly a heading there at verse 27. So this is kind of a combination of two different sections, but hopefully you'll see that some of these themes carry over um, from verse 20 all the way to verse 36. Um, but it might be helpful for you to think about these and break them up in your mind. Um, first of all, verses 20 through 26 is where the humble shepherd king reveals suffering and sacrifice on the road to triumph. And that this is all the design of the father. That's what he lays out in those first seven verses. Then when we come to verses 27 through 36, the shepherd king reveals his own struggle, his own resolve, and his call to follow him. So we get the clear teaching in the first part, and in the second part, we get to actually see the person of Christ responding and dealing with this from his own perspective. But let's go back up to verse 20, because this starts out really, really hopeful. Among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Now when John points out that these are Greeks, he's, he's not saying that these are Jews who live in Greek-speaking lands. He's saying these are non-Jews. It's possible that they might have been proselytes. That is, that they might have gone through a process of conversion and of becoming what would then make them a true Jew. Um, but most likely, we could at least classify these as God-fearers, which was a term that we could actually use for many other Gentiles in the rest of the New Testament. Um, Cornelius comes to mind, the Roman uh, centurion that, that says, wow, it recognizes who God truly is and rejects uh, the Roman lifestyle of uh, the pantheon of gods that they would worship, the, the many multitude. So these are at least God-fearers, if not actual uh, proselytes themselves. And it's interesting, John wants us to note that they don't come right to Jesus, and they don't just come to anybody, they come specifically to Philip. And it seems significant because John tells us Philip was from Bethsaida in Galilee, so he's from a very Gentile place, and he has a Gentile name, too. So certainly these Greeks, however many there might have been, are thinking, what, what do we need to do to get from where we are right now to where Jesus is? Because that's what we want. We want to see Jesus. They didn't want to just see him from far away. They wanted to be near him. They wanted essentially to interview him and to find out more about him and potentially to follow him. 
And when they overhear that one of the disciples' names is Philip, they feel pretty welcomed. Hey, this guy's name is Philip. That's a Gentile name. Maybe, maybe we should talk to him. Maybe we should see if you know, he can give us an audience with Jesus. Well, Philip seems to know the right thing to do. He goes and tells Andrew, and, and he says, you better come with me because i got to ask Jesus about Gentiles. And you know, maybe this is a little bit of a nervous instance for him. Maybe there's some lack of clarity on his part. We're not entirely sure. But Philip and Andrew go to Jesus and we can presume that they say, hey, Jesus, there's some Greeks here that would really love to see you. And this seems like a very good thing. Nearness to Jesus is definitely something that we should long for. Ephesians 2, verse 14, the Apostle Paul writes to the church and says that what Jesus has done has broken down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. And this is that very verse played out here in, in, so early on in the life of the church. I mean, the church hasn't even officially begun but it's a really, really remarkable moment. You know, Jesus um, was there in Jerusalem at a time where the temple still stood. And, you know, this is a really good place to plug Sunday school. Because this past year, um, Tim and Ross led us through a really helpful study on uh, the temple, the tabernacle, and, and what all those elements are. But one important thing to note in this passage is that these Greeks would not have been allowed into the temple as much as the Jews were. And that there was an actual court outside of the temple called the Court of the Gentiles, wherein they were allowed to come and worship. But there was a clear designation. You may come this far, but no nearer. So you see, this is significant. And it's significant not just for this very moment, for, but for the whole of what John is communicating to us in the verses that we've read. This seems like a moment of triumph. This seems like a great moment of where things are going to be very radically different. And, and Philip and Andrew are excited to bring Greeks to Jesus, whereas his ministry has been primarily to the Jews at this point. But look at what Jesus says in response in verse 23. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. We would see Jesus bring us to him. Jesus, these Gentiles, they'd like to meet you. And in that moment, something radical happens. Because we've heard of the hour many times, haven't we? Multiple times in the Gospel of John, beginning all the way back to, you remember the first time? John chapter 2, Jesus is at a wedding. Mary, his mother, comes to him and says, hey, they ran out of wine. Implying, can you do something about this? I know who you are, right? And Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And at multiple times then, John points out, Jesus points out, his hour hadn't come yet. They couldn't arrest him. This, these things couldn't quite happen. But now, when these Greeks come to see Jesus, Jesus' response is not, oh yeah, let me talk to them. But rather, this is what uh, Bruce Mill and a commentator calls an exploding fuse in the mind of Jesus. This is where the turning point really, really, really happens. Yes, he's already entered into Jerusalem. That was significant. But what's fascinating is, is that Jesus points out the matter of his hour coming when the Gentiles have arrived. It's fascinating. You know, he, he doesn't go on then to explain, hey, listen, something really crazy just happened because you're all Gentiles. I was just here first for the Jews. He, he doesn't go in that direction. He realizes the hour has come, and that really, really sets the scene for how important these next verses are. And I know it's a funny thing when you hear in a sermon that these verses are important, because what you should say is, yes, Nick, 
the whole Bible is important. I get that. But when we think about this narratively and the progress of the story, it's important that Jesus raised Lazarus and that he fed over 5,000. Those things are very, very important. They're very helpful in explaining who Jesus is. But now we're coming to this place where Jesus is about to fulfill the mission that he came for, that he is going to welcome even Gentiles, even non-Jews into the family of God through what he would do at the cross. And so what does he say in verse 24? Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The exploding fuse was, my death is now much closer than it has ever been. And what does he do with that death? He actually, in explaining what he's going to do, he immediately brings his disciples into that. Now again, don't forget the distinction here is very important. He doesn't call us to do anything to pay for our sins. His suffering will be unique. His suffering is not primarily about dying on a Roman cross, but his suffering is about drinking the cup of God's wrath against all of his people's sin. But what he does indeed is say in the next verses, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now it's probably important for us to point out here that what Jesus is not saying is that you ought not think of your life as something to hate. This is a very common Jewish literary device, communicating device. It's meant to use these words love and hate in such a way as to say the gap between these two things is enormous. It is not something you can bring these two things together. You cannot bring a life committed to Christ and a life committed to comfort and put them together and make them the same thing. As hard as we try, and do we try? I'll say, I know I do. I know that my heart's desire so often is to say, yes, I want to be faithful to Christ, but I also would really love to enjoy as much of this life as I possibly can. I'd really love to not leave out any good thing, even, even with the, the mindset of well, every good thing comes from the Father, right? So, so aren't there things that I shouldn't? I just kind of lean full into these things and still be faithful to Jesus, kind of hold his hand, but we'd be walking this way? He says, no, the gap is insurmountable. It's, it's as if the difference of love and hate separates those two things. And the problem is, if we do not take this mindset, then the opposite of verse 26 is true. Jesus says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. Is our priority on being where Jesus is or trying to bring him into where we are? Because it doesn't work that way. It can only work this way. The necessity of presence with Jesus means that we may have to, in our following him, which means to imitate him, that is to live a life in light of the character and actions of Christ, to walk in the light, as he sums up in the end of this passage, we are going to have to recognize that too much love for life leads to loss. We would think the opposite naturally, right? If I love life, I'm going to get the most out of it that I possibly can. I'm going to walk away with gain. I'm going to walk away with everything I can possibly grab for myself. But Jesus teaches that too much love for life actually leads to loss. Whoever loves his life, whoever puts primacy upon his life over his relationship with Jesus, is going to lose his life. He'll not be able to keep it. 
And suffering is one of the tools that God uses in our lives to remind us of those things. Boy, do we balk at suffering. Do we reject anything that we see off in the distance that, oh, that's going to be really hard in the end. I'd like to see if there's another way around that to make things easier. Naturally, that's our response, to reject anything that brings suffering. And then that natural response builds a humanistic philosophy in our minds that the definition of evil includes anything that would cause me to suffer or to give something up as a sacrifice that I hold dearly. Perhaps uh, Don Carson will help us clarify this even more. He says that this idea of loving one's life is a fundamental denial of God's sovereignty, of God's rights, and it is a brazen elevation of self to the highest point of one's perception. Sometimes I wish I could preach like Don Carson. Wow. (laughs) But again, hear that again. To love one's life is a fundamental denial in the first place. To deny God's sovereign rule and deny God's rights to do as he will. The Bible's clear. Abraham says it, I think, perhaps in one of the best places, and when he's talking about uh, trying to protect his nephew in Sodom and Gomorrah, and he says to the Lord, he says, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Of course he will. But what makes it right? What makes it right is that it's the action of God. Not that God holds himself to a standard outside of himself, but that whatever God says is right because he has said it. Whatever God does is right because he has done it. It is absolutely impossible for God to do something that is wrong. That's why there's stupid questions out there like, can God God create a boulder that's too heavy for him to lift? That's, That's an idiotic question. There there is impossibility with God because there is infinity with God. And there is an infinite quality to his characteristics such as his righteousness. That his righteousness cannot be bent or broken in any way, shape, or form. But we build this philosophy in our minds by our love for our life that if something threatens the things that I love with suffering or pain, or if I am faced with a choice to give something up for something else, then that very easily fits under our definition of evil. Jesus is calling us to reverse that. Again, as we think about the conflict of facing our sin with this, I want you to think about the crowds in verses 33 and 34, if you would please direct your attention there. After Jesus has explained what he's come to do, and what the voice that came from heaven has said and the purpose of it, they're so confused. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we've heard that the, from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Now in this you hear a very genuine question. Their understanding of the Messiah, of the true King, is contrary to what he just said. And there is an innocent aspect of this that perhaps in that crowd is people just say, I just want to understand. I don't get it. Please explain how these two things go together. But more importantly is that this confusion stems out of this wrong philosophical view that, that many of us in the world have. 
we do love our lives too much. And to, to follow somebody who calls us to do what he's about to do would mean suffering. It would mean sacrifice. And we're not all ready to do that. The crowds were limited in their understanding, and they respond with that kind of limited understanding to the death of Christ. Their desire is to maintain what they can. And, you know, this is the crowd who doesn't have much. Do you remember what they said when Jesus came in? Hosanna, O Lord, save. They were looking for salvation from their oppressors, from Rome, from Herod. They were looking for freedom. They were looking for God's good in their lives. But even in this moment, as he starts talking about death, even this crowd can say, there's still things here that I want to hold on to. There's still a life I'm working on building for myself. Perhaps that life included a desire to be among those who are served and no longer the servants. You know, one big thing in the Jewish mindset of the day would be that because they were God's people, that they would have this privileged place above all other peoples, that they would be elevated to where they belong. And that perhaps there would be a matter of service to them being done, that they might be followed and revered, that they might find honor in the midst of the comforts that they so long for in this life. Do you feel the tug away from the road of sacrifice and suffering as you go throughout your regular week and your car breaks down and this other thing happens and things pile up and pile up and you just go, someday heaven is all going to be about how my car is never going to break down, how I'm never going to get sick, how no one's ever going to be mad at me, how I'll never have to deal with conflict in a conversation. All those things will go away. That's true. But that can't be our prime motivation for the kingdom of God to come in its fullness. Because if it is our primary motivation, then the truth is, is that we are just those who love our lives, as Jesus defines it. This can happen in church life as well. It's very easy for us to find in our hearts a coveting of position and prestige. That we might ask questions in our own minds. Doesn't God want me somewhere more honorable than where I am right now? And why don't people see my worth? Our view of suffering, our view of life, our view of evil and of God and all the things that we've discussed so far, in the warped perspective of this world and this time, it's so easy for us to build the universe around ourselves. And the scariest thing is that we hear messages all week about how we should do that. Burger King would love for you to come and have it your way. And that's just the first one that comes to my mind, but maybe there's others too, other slogans. Do you feel the tug away from the road of suffering and sacrifice when you realize the temptations around you? Because the temptation that troubles us the most, whether we admit it or realize it or not, is that there is a temptation because of our love for life, there's a temptation for us to build a wall that could be high enough around our lives to keep the call of Christ for suffering and sacrifice as far away as possible. But the problem is, is that if we do that, we're not only keeping suffering and sacrifice far away from us, but we're keeping ourselves far from Christ. It is an essential ingredient in the life of the disciple to face and endure and be prepared for suffering. 
to make sacrifices. One of the things I've been thinking about this past week is, boy, be careful, because it was just a couple weeks ago that we were talking about Mary and her sacrificial worship, right? And that beautiful picture of what she, she poured out that highly expensive um, perfume on the feet of Jesus to wash his feet and dry them with her hair. And what a beautiful picture of her affection and love and submission to Christ. That's sacrificial. That is giving something up for that better thing, which is Jesus in this case. But there's also sacrifices that will need to be made that might hurt more than that. And we must not risk distance from Christ by running from suffering, by running from sacrifice. Verse 26 again. Whoever loves his, I'm sorry, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, must follow me. Right after he said, I'm going to die. Right before he explained that even further. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. It is a dangerous thing that the reality of American Christianity so often boils down to I would really love for Jesus to come tag along to all my plans, wave a magic wand over everything I want to do, and make sure that it all runs smoothly. And it's due in part, I'll point it out, it's due in part to the fact that over the last hundred years, there's been a larger gospel message that calls people to make Jesus their Savior and ends it with that. Put your faith in Jesus so you don't go to hell. You don't want to go to hell, do you? Look what he did on the cross. You can escape hell because he endured it for you. Now, who's going to sign a card? Who's going to come up to the altar? Who's going to get baptized? We leave out the all-important matter of discipleship. And, and it's been justified, too. I've heard it from the, the mouths of pastors and leaders who have said, look, yeah, we know we're doing this. But that's because later on what they'll find is in a crisis moment, they'll realize they can't live the Christian life alone and that Jesus is their Savior. Now he also needs to be their Lord. And then they realize, oh, okay. And I'm afraid with that mentality. I'm afraid that sometimes that might even seep into my own preaching. So if it does, throw a tomato at me or something because I would hate to think that the gospel that you hear at Crosspoint would be one that says, hey, just Say you believe in Jesus, and that you won't go to hell. And that would leave out such a huge part of following Jesus, of conforming our lives to him and allowing God, even through something like suffering, to make us more like his son. See, the cross is a matter of salvation, but Jesus says, look at verse 31, because this is going to sound harsh-ish, but he's saying it, not me. Now in reference to the hour. Remember, he said now twice. That was another thing I wanted to point out earlier. Verse 27 and verse 31. He's still talking about the hour. That's what connects those two sections I mentioned earlier. One of the things. He says in verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out. Now is the judgment of the world. The hour of Christ's substitution, his taking your place on the cross is the judgment of this world. In one sense, how we can boil this down is to say that the cross becomes the fixed point of judgment for all of time. Yes, people will stand before God to be judged for their sins or for their faith in Christ. But all the sin and all the world of all the lost will be paramount at the cross. In that, 
their greatest, the greatest sin of the lost one is that they did not repent and believe the gospel. And that becomes the umbrella over everything else. Because that is where the person who does repent, who does believe in the gospel, that's where everything changes. That's where their relationship with sin is completely transformed. Because they're saying, now I need to be where Jesus is. I need to even embrace suffering. And the reason that there's a difference between those that are lost and those that will become Jesus's, his people, is this very thing. Look back again at verse 27. Jumping around again. Sorry, I guess it's just becoming my style. I was apologizing for it, but now it seems to be working. Jesus cared more for the glory of his Father than the comfort of this life. That is what we need to repent to. That is what we need to turn to and believe this morning. Verse 27, now is my soul troubled. Consider the troubled soul of Christ. What this word means is not just, oh, troubled. I don't know what to order for dinner tonight. Or I don't know how to plan my week the best way. The troubling of Christ's soul is a matter of anguish and shock and agitation and revulsion. The experience of the person of Christ has never come to this point in his relationship with his father. He would go from the blessed closeness that he shared with his heavenly father to becoming the one who must drink the cup of his wrath, to being separated from God on our behalf. And he confesses in one sense. And by confession, I don't mean that he'd done something wrong, but he's being honest, right? Now is my soul troubled. What does the hour that the father has brought Jesus to actually do in his life? It troubles him deeply. And so he says, what shall I say? Trouble has come in. Suffering is on the horizon. How do I pray? How do we pray in this moment, church? Ah, oh, suffering's coming. We, we need to do that thing. What's that thing? Oh, yeah, pray. Got it. What do we pray? Oh, I know exactly what to pray for. We know so well how to pray when suffering is on the horizon of our lives, don't we? Because we immediately run to it. We say, Lord, get rid of it, please. I'm a child of God. I don't deserve this. I'm not for this. This is for the world. This is for the lost. Get rid of it. Move me far from it. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. See how quickly truth transforms or, or moves forward the discussion of Jesus here in this moment. He's honest. My soul is troubled. And here's the thing, church. Here's the thing, people listening to Jesus at this moment. What shall I say? Shall I be like some of you, he says to our hearts, and immediately run to Father, save me from this hour. Let this be over. Let this cup pass from me, he says in the garden. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. He remembers what his father has sent him for. So verse 28 becomes his prayer. Not father, save me from this hour, but father, glorify your name. Jesus cared more for the glory of his father than the comfort of this life. That is the remedy to rejecting suffering and rejecting sacrifice. Love of God for us in salvation, seeing Christ for who he is and what he has done and responding with a desire to glorify him. The cross is the glorification of Christ. This is what he says now. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. But look at how the Son of Man is glorified. By glorifying the name of his Father. 
There he will glorify not himself, but his father. There he will leave his heavenly throne and any hope of earthly triumph of rushing off on that donkey up to King Herod and taking him out, going to Rome, taking Caesar out. He leaves all of that behind for the sake of the glory of his father. Only Jesus then could understand the voice that would come after that. In response to Jesus' prayer, a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Look at the response of the crowd and throw yourself in there too. Because you wouldn't be that one going, ooh, 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 I heard it, right? Well, the crowd, some of them say, boy, it sounded like thunder. What was that? And another says, maybe it was an angel. Both, both parts of the crowd are way off. They know something happened, but they can't discern the voice of God. Only Jesus was able to do that. And by faith, he brings us into that kind of relationship with the Father so that we can hear his voice. So that right now, as you hear God's word, if you are responding with faith, it is because you're able to discern the voice of God. And if you hear something goofy out of this mouth that says that that doesn't match up with who God is, that's because you know who God is. Praise the Lord. Discern those things by the Spirit and because of what Christ has done for you. This voice hasn't come for, has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out. Think about these effects of his triumph through suffering and sacrifice. It could only have happened through the cross. It could only have involved suffering, and it could only have involved sacrifice. Verse 31, the ruler of this world will be cast out. That is to think literally about someone holding a governmental office and somebody, come, somebody coming in and kicking him out of it. He's cast out of office. Does the enemy of our hearts still pester and disturb and torment people today? Yes. But he is not in the same place of power that he held before the cross. He is, as it were, defeated and will one day fully realize how defeated he really is. And because of that, we are no longer bound by what we once were before we knew Christ. We're not bound to those false philosophies of suffering brings pain, pain is bad, therefore suffering is evil. We who are in Christ now can say, the whole of my life is grounded on the suffering of someone else. And God has so transformed my mind through Christ that now I can say suffering can bring good things. The grain of wheat does need to be buried into the earth and die so that it can bear much fruit, so that he, in verse 32, can draw all people to himself when he is lifted up from the earth. Now, that is not talking about what we're doing right now or what you do when you really feel very worshipful and you're lifting up the name of Jesus. It's very specific. John tells us in verse 33, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. That is the lifting up of Christ. And in that lifting up, he doesn't save every single person who ever lived. We're not universalists in our understanding of this passage. But what he means literally is just what we started with in the beginning of this passage. That's why it was such an explosive fuse in the mind of Christ when the Greeks came. And he looked at them and thought, the hour has come. Now it's here. And when I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. How did he know the hour was here? Because all peoples were being drawn to Jesus, even Greeks at the time. It was a turning point, and it was the means of his harvest that he was going to, to be buried, to be killed and buried and rise again on the third day. So we come to our completion, what we must do in walking by the Spirit this week. We need to walk in light of the eternal triumph of Christ, and we need to 
accept suffering and sacrifice to the end? What would it look like for you to have the resolve of Christ that he showed in verse 27? To say, now is my soul troubled. What am I going to say? Am I going to be like I used to be where when, when suffering happened, the only thing I could pray was, Lord, please just, I'm going to just close my eyes and stop my ears. And when it's over, let me know. And if you had a life lesson or whatever, just let me know at the end. But don't make me live through it. No. It would be the resolve that says, no, I'm not going to pray that way. This is the purpose that I've come to this hour. If it's the purpose of your Savior, it's the purpose of your life. What would it look like for you to resolve in such a way as to be Christ-like in whatever it is that you're facing this week? That thing that makes you say, I don't want to wake up on Monday morning, or I can't do that thing on Thursday night, or that thing that's still looming that hasn't been resolved. It's going to bring suffering, maybe, but do you trust the sovereign work of God to do the opposite, again, of what Carson told us here? To, loves one, to love one's life as a fundamental denial of God's sovereignty, a denial of God's rights, and a brazen elevation of, the, of self to the highest of one's own perception. Are you able then to come under the sovereignty of God and say, Lord, you can do all things. If you really love me, then my interpretation cannot be, well, you must not love me because this is hard, but my new interpretation has to be, your love is going to be shown through this in some amazing way. And many of us have testimonies of how suffering and making sacrifices has brought us closer to Christ. And is there anything that we need more in this life than being close to Christ? I want to end with giving you some words from Jonathan Edwards, who was born in the early 1700s and died in the 1750s, instrumental to the Great Awakening and our nation's, nation's history. One of the things he did as a teenager, I, this is the thing that always gets me, reading about these old dead guys, they did such incredible things when they were like 16. Charles Spurgeon started preaching at 17. He became a pastor. You know what I was doing at 17? Not being ready to be a pastor. You know what I was doing at 27? I was not ready to be a pastor at 27. I'm probably still not ready, who knows? But they're always doing these amazing things when they're so young. And Jonathan Edwards, in his teenage years, after becoming a Christian, wrote out something like 100 different resolutions, resolutions that he would hold for the entirety of his life and that he would use as a guide to walk through life in Christ. And I'm going to share just four of them with you. And I know you all breathed a sigh. He said 100 of them. Oh, man. There's only four. There's four particularly that apply to suffering so well. So hear these and... and, and Dismiss the old English and try to catch the, the gist of it. His ninth resolution says resolved. It always started with that. Resolved. Resolved to think much on all occasions of my own dying. How often we just pretend like we're not going to die. Let's just not think about that. He resolved to think about it a lot. And of the common circumstances which attend death. What are the common circumstances that attend death? Suffering. Resolution number nine should lead us to say, don't shrink back. Don't retract from suffering and sacrifice. Resolution 10, resolved when I feel pain to think of the pains of martyrdom and of hell. This is, does this book sell today? <laughs> the book that would be written off of that statement? Hey, you know what you really need to do? Think a lot about becoming a martyr and think a lot about hell. It's not a very popular opinion. But what should that do? Should it not produce rejoicing in us and our eternal hope of what Christ has done, what he has saved us from? 
Not just what he has saved us to, that's the best part, but what he has saved us from as well. He has saved us from hell. He's, and even in martyrdom, I mean, what can this world do? What can this world really do but end anything that I shouldn't be holding too dear anyway? It can't take from me my truest treasure and my triumph in Christ. Resolution 67, two more. Resolved after afflictions to inquire what I am the better for them. What, Jonathan? What he's saying is, I've resolved that during all of my trials, all my suffering, I'm going to ask, how am I better for these things? And I would say Edwards would ask that with the anticipation that he would find out. See, there's a lot of things in the will of God that we go, I don't know, he just hasn't revealed it to me yet. I don't know if I should take this job or move to this house or marry this person or all those kinds of things. You know what one thing I think he will show you and relatively quickly is how the suffering he brings into your life is forming you into the character of Christ. I think that is one of those things that he wastes no time in saying because I think our heavenly father who does good in our lives wants us to know in those things that we question whether they are good or not, that he will reveal that in and through our lives. Yeah, he spoke to Job and he was like, who are you to ask me, right? But now in Christ, we've been brought near. Things are different. Last one, resolution 57. Resolved when I fear misfortune and adversities to examine whether I have done my duty and still resolve to do it. That is to say, this is a really good one. He was resolved that when suffering or trials or any kind of opposition in his life comes, he was resolved to ask whether he was doing the right thing or not. Am I following Christ in this? Is the suffering coming because I am following Jesus? And whether he was following Jesus or wasn't following Jesus, he resolved to follow Jesus. When I fear misfortunes and adversities, when fear is in my heart, I'm worried about the future. I'm going to examine my heart and say, which path is following Jesus? Because very often the path of suffering is the path of Christ. Let us not forget that. Jesus' exhortation in closing. I know you're not supposed to say in closing. It's a bad word in your sermon. But verse 7 of 1 John chapter 1. I'm just going to turn there so I don't butcher it. Verse 7 of 1 John chapter 1 in light of what he says about walking in the light, that you may be sons of light. His exhortation in response to those that wanted clarification. Who is this son of man? What are you talking about? He actually says, hey, look, you need to stay with the light while the light is with you. Don't wander off into the darkness. 1 John 1, 7, John, the same author, says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We're cleansed from our sin, We have communion not only with him, but with each other, which is part of what is meant to happen here, is not just to say, yes, we all are are a part of the family of Christ individually, but we are a part of the family of Christ collectively as well. That this this is a picture of the thing that you share the most with the people that sit in the pink chairs next to you. The most defining trait that is shared amongst God's people is Christ and their closeness to him, their fellowship with him, with him and with each other. And that will affect the way we accept suffering and sacrifice in our lives by identifying with and loving Christ, by seeking the glory of the divine perspective, not of the human perspective. 